0: We, we're, we're talking about choices that we make, life choices, and, and we're talking about the difference between religion and relationship, and, and today I, I just want to talk about equality in Christ. Okay? That's, that's the title of this message, and I, in a moment you'll figure out where I'm going. Do what? I'm afraid I'll get to sucking wind and I'll suck it down and somebody will have to come up here and and somebody come up here and have to give me the Heimlich maneuver or something. Okay, listen to me. If I quit breathing and my eyes get big, it ain't the Holy Spirit, okay? It's going to be this mint. Um. I'm going to broach a subject today, and by broach I mean I'm going to touch a subject today that there's a lot of confusion about, there's a lot of disagreement about. All I want you to do is just read your Bible. Look at what your Bible says. Don't take everything I say as gospel, but then again, don't take everything somebody else has said as gospel. Take your Bible Study what your Bible says. Don't take it as a verse from here and a verse from this book and that book and cobble together a doctrine, okay? Because that's not what Scripture does. Scripture speaks truth from beginning to end. It is a unity, okay? And I'll talk more about that today. But one of the chief dangers of religion is it has an innate desire to separate rather than together. Okay? It, it, it would rather segregate rather than unite. Religion has its greatest growth and its greatest strength in divisive disagreements. Y'all realize yes, when, when groups disagree, what happens? They separate, they split, and they go this way, and instead of having a strong group, you have two weak groups. And it's not long before this group can't agree with each other, and what happens? They separate. And you, you just multiply. It just goes and goes and goes until you got a whole bunch of little different groups that believe all different kinds of things, but they're making no effect in the kingdom of God. And so religion wants to separate us. It wants to push us apart. It doesn't want to draw us together. It loves to turn every disagreement into an argument. Okay? It's okay if we disagree. You're going to probably, some of you in here this morning, going to leave totally disagreeing with me. But it's okay to disagree, all right? Don't y'all agree? We don't have to agree with everybody. But we can find some common ground, all right? We can love each other and we can respect each other even though we disagree. Disagreements are not bad things. Kathy and I don't agree on everything. Okay? We we just don't. We don't agree on how to do things sometimes. We don't agree on a lot of things. But you know what? I love her. And she loves me. And I respect her opinion. I respect her right as a human being to disagree. And so disagreement's not a bad thing. But what happens is religion likes to turn every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a polarization. polarizing camp of us and them and we live that way there's us and them the only problem is we don't know who us is and everybody that's a little bit different than us they live in the them camp and we don't know what they believe and we don't even know what we believe okay And so what happens is religion makes it about us versus them instead of Jesus. And religion thrives and it it survives on systems that propagate inequality, which typically breeds us and them mentality. Genuine relationship is all about us becoming one. That's the purpose of One of the purposes, Jesus died so that we could be one with Him as He is one with the Father. That's what He said. That's what He prayed in John chapter 17. We're to be one heart and one mind together with Jesus. But you know who fears oneness? The devil does. I'm not talking about uniformness. I'm talking about unity. You know what? We can be united and still disagree on things. All right. We don't have to all be cookie cutter. You don't have to parrot what, what, what somebody else says to, to qualify. Now listen, we live in a, in a country today that if you don't believe this or you don't believe this, you're not this. And, and we've, we've, we've chosen sides. The only problem is that the vast difference in the sides is huge. They don't all agree with the side they're on. But if they're not on my side... It's them against us. And so what happens is the devil, he loves, he loves to empower those things that separate us. He fears it. And so he empowers religion to bring about fear. And he, he, he empowers religion to bring about division. And what happens is when there's fear and division, there's inequality. The, the, the very things that Jesus died for get jumbled up. Now, it's easy to see divisions between various denominations, isn't it? I mean, this denomination believes this, this one believes this, this one believes that, that one believes this. There's differences. And and there's lots of theological beliefs. And there's, there's differences. But it's far more subtle when the devil does this, when it's our relationship between each other and nowhere is it more clear and more subtle and more dangerous and more deadly than when it comes to the issues of men and women in the church all right now i know part of my audience has just tuned in and part of my audience has just tuned out and i'm i'm just going to tell you hang with me today because this is not going to be church as usual all right i'm just going to challenge you I want to ask you some questions this morning. I want you to think about them before you answer me, okay? Are men and women equal in their standing before Christ? Okay? Are they equal in their relationship with Christ? In other words, are men and women equal in Christ? Yes. Do you really believe that? Okay. Religion says no. All right? And you don't have to look very far to see that the church has said no. You can look at human history and there has been no equality of men and women throughout human history. And I know the verse that they take and they pull right out of context and they define the words like they want to define, but that's not what the Hebrew says. When God created the man and the woman He said, let us create man. And that word there is Adamah in the, in the Hebrew. Adamah means male and female because God says and He made them Adamah, He made man male and female. He made humanity male and female. And He gave both of them the same mandate. They are to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. Adam and Eve were created to be partners ruling this world, all right? Yes, they had different roles, but they were partners. Eve completed Adam. That's what the word azarconigno, which is helpmate, means. The one who compliments. I know I'm, I'm getting way ahead of my notes and I'm going to circle back in, but that's what it means. It means the completing part, the complementing part. You see, Adam was incomplete. Without Eve. But Eve was incomplete without Adam. God made us to be a unity so that we could accomplish what He put us here for. He didn't put us here to, to segregate us. He didn't put us here so that one group could get all the, the, the benefits and the other group just had to go along and do whatever they had to do. But that's what human history has walked out. They have taken the pronouncement that God made to Adam and to Eve, and they have twisted those words to mean that men will dominate and women will be subject to. That's not what God said there. Okay? I'll have to teach on that a different day. Nothing changed with God's uh, purpose. And when Jesus came, Jesus restored the purpose that was supposed to be in the garden. And He restored it where at? In the church. Y'all tracking with me or do I need to circle back? and okay. The church, our relationships here, are supposed to mirror the original relationship that Adam and Eve. We are supposed to take dominion over this planet together. There's not a super class and a lower class. There's not two classes. There's just one. And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in a minute that says that. But if we just look at human history, we see that. If we look at church history, we see it. Both of those, those histories have maintained a, 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 a system of division, a hierarchy in a sense, a, 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 a group of cans and cannots. And in, in many churches today, and, and I pray this is not the case here because this is not my heart, all right? I want you to hear that from me. I pray that none of the ladies in this church feel like they are second-class citizens or that they can't do certain things because Scripture teaches that that we are all equal heirs of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but what about, but what about, well, what about it? We're going to talk about some of that today. We're going to talk about that today. In many churches, women have been marginalized, they've been segregated, they've been forbidden to use their gifts to pray or to speak, and they're told they're not qualified, and therefore, they're forbidden from a lot of different kinds of ministry. Yet that's not what Jesus modeled. You see, what I have learned In in my 62 years, as as I have studied Scripture for a long time, I have found that Jesus, and this is what John says, John says that Jesus came to show us who the Father was. He came to open up the Father's heart so that we would know who God is. So when I look at Jesus, who am I seeing? I'm seeing God. When Jesus does something, He's doing what God would do in that situation. Amen? Okay, just just hang with me today then. All right? Jesus never modeled that. He never modeled that there was a class here and a class here. He never modeled that. He never gave credence to it. He never bent to culture. if you think he did, listen, he would have never spoken to the, uh, to the Samaritan woman because Jewish rabbis did not speak to any woman in public. And they certainly didn't speak to the, to the Samaritan woman. He would never have allowed the woman who came to pour uh, oil and, and perfume and her tears on his feet. He would have never allowed her to touch him. So Jesus didn't give credence to those beliefs. He he didn't go into those religious belief systems. And you know what? I don't think the Bible teaches that. Now remember, you have to take all the Bible together. You, You can't separate something Paul says, one verse, and make a doctrine out of it. All right? When we do that, things get dangerous. One of the clearest biblical passages on the joint equality in Christ is found in Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-eight. Paul's writing to a church that wants to go back and embrace embrace uh, certain tenets of Judaism. They want to they want to keep the law but live under grace, which is impossible. And so he's writing this letter to them to show them that you know what? There's no The law is is fulfilled. And because the law has been fulfilled, there's no divisions. There's no Jews. There's no Gentiles. So we're not going back to Judaism because it couldn't get you where it needed to get you. There's more. And he begins to talk about the gospel. And so he, he, he starts chapter 3 out and he says, brethren. And I know when we read that in the English translation, we think it means men. But the word brethren is adelphoi. Adelphos. Adelphos means brethren. It means brothers and sisters. Okay? That's all it means there. And when he says brethren, the very first word in, in Galatians chapter 3 is, is uh, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 15. He begins to, to talk. He says, he says, Brethren. And he begins to talk about human relationships. And then in verse 28, he says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all in Christ Jesus. You see, what Jesus is saying is, he he is coming against the very, I mean, Paul is is coming against the very foundations of, of the cultures he lives in. See the Jews, and we're Jews. We're not like any of the rest of them. We're the holy ones. We've got the law. God gave us the law. We're better. Paul says, You're not better. If you don't think that's what he says, you need to read Romans, because he spends 16 chapters arguing that, like a lawyer. Alright? But but the Jews weren't better. But the Greeks, they thought they were better. They were philosoph- philosophers. They, they had the culture and they had, they had the paintings. They had the buildings. We're just better than the Jews. We don't believe in just one God. We, we, we got them all covered in our pantheon. And so there was always this tension between the Jews and the Greeks. You see it from the very beginning of the church. Why were deacons chosen. Because there was an argument between the Jewish widows and the Greek widows. Or the Hellenized, the, the Jewish Greek widows. There was an argument. There was a disagreement. And so Paul says there's neither Jew or Greek. In the, in the body of Christ, there is no nationality. And then he says there's neither slave or free. Listen, you are either a slave or Or you were free. Okay? There were different classes of free. There were those that had never been slaves. There were those who had been freed because they'd worked out their, their debt or they had bought their freedom. They were called freedmen. And then there were slaves. Most of the world at this time were slaves. And there was a a line of demarcation between them that you could not cross. Slaves had to do whatever they were told. Okay? I mean, whatever. Female slaves were basically, and male slaves as well, were the property of whomever owned them. And if they wanted to use them in the field, they could. And if they wanted to use them in a sexual manner, they could. And there was nothing that the slaves could do about it. That was the, that was the condition that they lived in. And, and, and culture, the, the Greek and the Roman culture looked at the, the, the owners as you can do anything you want. They're your property. Paul says, there's no slaves There's no free. Now, the early church was made up of slaves and freed people and those who had always been free. So all of a sudden, society's mores and society's rules don't apply any longer in the church. Y'all got that? This is revolutionary what's taking place here. Because they would send, the government would send spies out whenever a new group arose, and they would check things out. And if they weren't going according to what culture said and the law said, they would shut them down. Does that make sense? And yet Paul is writing to this group, and he says, look, there's there's no longer any Jews and Greeks. There's no separation. There's no longer slave or free. And then he says this, there's neither male nor female. Whoa, 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 whoa. Our cultures are built on the differences. That's what the Jews would say. That's what the Greeks and the Romans would say. No, 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 no. But Paul says there's there's no difference. He said, because for you are all one. In other words, God views you not as male or female, not as slave or free, not as Jew or Gentile. He He views you when you become a part of the church as His. I'm a, I'm a son of God. And you say, Nelson, why don't you use daughter of God? Because the son of God, here's, here's what we have not taught in the church. To be a son of God was, a, was beyond belief. Because... It goes back to the adoption thing, when a person, when a when a a man adopted a son, that son could never be cast off. He could never be turned against. He could never be turned out. That son got the got a a a a a inheritance of the firstborn, which means he got double. And so when, when Paul uses this idea of we are the sons of God, he's saying to us men and women that we have a double inheritance of God. See, when Paul uses this term, it's not a sexist term. It's not a gender term. It's a, it's a, a tremendous truth that he wants to communicate out because everybody who read this understood what he's talking about. They understood the adoption thing. We're 2,000 years removed and we don't have a clue. And so he's calling us his sons. And so what Paul is doing here, he's saying, is that we're not, we're, there's no nationality, there's no class, there's no gender categories of Christians, there's no division in Christ. There's equality. I want to ask you this Did, did Jesus pay a different price to redeem men than he did women? Do women need more grace than men? Okay, I know some of you are thinking I'm gonna say something funny here, don't all right, cause it would be really stupid. One of the things I made a decision never to do when I began to preach was to tell jokes about women. okay I just don't do it i don't I don't have any use for it, all right I think that's the stupidest thing a pastor can do when he stands up to preach because what he does is he effectively shuts off what God has to say for at least half the the people there and most times 60% to 70%. So if if you, if you, if something goes through your head just just denote it as that's the spirit of stupidity working right now and I don't need to give him place, okay? So do women need more grace than men? Okay. Is there a distinction between the sins of women and the sins of men? Is one greater than the other? Okay, are, are women still paying for the sin of Eve? No. I ain't getting many answers right there. Because I know exactly what verses come to your mind. That verse has been pulled out of context. Paul never meant that. I'm going to give you three verses which will do away with that belief. That I'm somehow paying for the sin of Eve. First of all, sin did not enter into this fear sphere, into this realm, into this dimension through Eve. It entered, Scripture says, through Adam. Alright? Eve wasn't out there by herself. Alright? What translators have done is they've left out the translation of what the Hebrew says. Eve was standing with Adam, with him, which means the word is elbow to elbow when all of it took place. Alright? right. And so here's a a passage in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 that that says what it says. It says, The person who sins will die. In other words, if you sin, you will die. And if somebody else sins, you're not responsible for that. And he explains it. He He says, The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. In other words, We bear our own sin, all right? Eve bore her sin. Adam bore his sin. But Jesus has borne all of our sins, which means He's removed those sins from us. He paid for them. Here's what Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that we don't have to point a finger at Eve and say it's her fault. Because we got three pointing back to us that says, It's my fault. And then Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's what happens in Scripture and what happens a lot of times with doctrines and what happens with preaching and teaching. Too often we get caught up in religion. And religion loves to cherry-pick. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You don't just reach up there and get a handful of you. Religion loves to cherry-pick Scripture passages. And then it likes to concoct religious standards and rules that typically divide, diminish, or destroy us. And most of us simply accept what we have been taught without questioning we don't we don't look into scripture. Well, Nelson, I didn't go to seminary. Well, you don't have to go to seminary. All right, we got the Bible in English. Get two or three translations. You've got a computer. My gosh, I can punch a button on the computer and get more information than my head can handle about one subject. This this book this book contains sixty six books. But those 66 books are not individual uh, stories. They are one story. From Genesis to Revelation, this is God's story. This is the revelation of who God is. It's a progressive revelation. In other words, God doesn't back the, 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 the dump truck up in Genesis and dump everything. You know why? Because we couldn't stand it. So he just progressively reveals it throughout Scripture until he gets to Jesus. And Scripture says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He tells Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration listen to him. In the last days, or in the, Jesus, I mean, God has spoken in former days through the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And by the way, Jesus, just, just, just so you'll know, Jesus is what's called the Logos. He is the Word of God. Okay? And this book is His Word. It's His revelation of, of who God is. One story, it's God's story, it's history, it's His story, it's His revelation. It's unified in its message. I don't know if you realize or not, there's not a, a different God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. It's the same God. Now people that are looking to, to, uh, to, to, to uh, denigrate Him and to, and to uh, not give Him the glory He deserves, they want to go to the Old Testament and go, but what about this and what about this and what about this? You can't just pick a verse or a passage. You have to read it as a whole and understand it. Listen, it was written by 40 different writers, 66 books, 40 different writers, 1,500 years, and yet there is one message. One message. One message. I happen to believe that the original autographs, when, when Paul sat down to write, or Moses sat down to write, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or, or John, when they sat down to write, what they penned was God-breathed. Okay? God-breathed. It was inspired. Which means it didn't have any mistakes. It, it didn't teach anything that was wrong. It was infallible. It was, it was inerrant. It was, it was uh, uh, without error. It was error. It was inspired. So you and I can believe what God has said. All right, We can put our faith in it. We can can trust it. But we need to read this book as a whole. We don't need to go... Give me a message, Lord. Oh, I don't like that one. We, We don't need to read Scripture that way. We need to read Scripture as it was written. When Paul wrote Romans he wrote 16 chapters. If I just pull a verse out of context, it may or may not mean what Paul intended which was the inspired meaning. It may mean something I want it to mean so I can prove that whatever I'm doing or whatever I group I run with is okay. All right? I have to understand the whole context of that book. I have to understand the argument because, believe me, there's a purpose to why they wrote these things down. John wrote the gospel of John so that, that we would know that Jesus was God. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke so that he could, he could uh, communicate to the Greeks and the, and the Gentiles who Jesus was. Mark wrote it so that that we would know He was Lord. Matthew wrote it so that the Jews would understand. You see, there's, there's different reasons why every book was written, but we have to understand that. When Paul writes to Ephesus, it's a total different culture than the culture in Corinth. But we love to reach over here and get a verse. And reach over there and get a verse and put them together and come up with a doctrine. Well, we got Paul dealing with two or three different things. When he writes to Timothy, he's writing a letter, a private letter to Timothy to help him pastor a specific church. When Paul writes to Romans, he's writing a letter that's to be read in front of all the churches. You see, you talk differently when you're writing personal letters than you do public matters and so what happens is we need to read the scriptures as a whole rather than pick out verses to support what we believe or what somebody has told us we ought to believe and I want to say this and, and I want to be careful how I say this but I want you to understand what I'm saying translations interpretations and doctrines of men are not inspired they are not inerrant and they are not infallible They are the work of men and women who have biases. Okay? That doesn't mean we can't believe this. It doesn't mean we can't stake our life on it. It just means I'm going to have to dig in and do a little work. I can't have a steak dinner every day. I'm going to have to sweat a little bit to figure out what the truth is sometimes. Because, listen, people write from biases. And listen to me, the early church fathers, those men that came in 200 and 300, two generations, uh, three generations, four generations, five generations, six generations away from the apostles, they were biased. They were biased because of the philosophy they believed. They weren't perfect. They were just like us. How many of you have some biases you wish you didn't have? How many of you struggle with some issues that that just keep cropping up and although you know they're not right, they just kind of crop up when you get angry or mad or you get in a situation? These guys were no different. They were products of the day that they lived in. They say some good things and they say some stupid things. All right? All right. So I've got to examine it all. I've got, I've got to put it together. And so one of the issues where there's a lot of bias is in the issues of, of men and women. I just find it fascinating that Jesus, uh, when He, when he uh, well, that, that Scripture, let me put it that way, the Holy Spirit, when Scripture wants to teach us about what a relationship with, with, uh, with Jesus is like, what example does He use? Husband and wife. Okay? Now Paul's writing in the first century, right? Okay? He, he uses uh, the relationship of a husband and a wife. And, and in the marital relationship, God designed and He determined that the roles of the husband and the wife, that, that there were certain things they would function under. And if you read Ephesians really close. That marriage relationship was to be uh, uh, overarching. That what would what would guide it was a mutual submission to one another. In the very first part of, of the passage, there in Ephesians, where it begins to talk about uh, about uh, marriage, it, it talks about it, it's a it's a general statement that that you're to be submissive to each one another. And so what happens is Paul begins to lay something out that was totally countercultural. It was totally different than what these women and these men understood. It was not the culture they had been raised in, nor the culture their mother and father had been raised in, nor their grandparents, nor their great-grandparents, nor as far back as they could go. And he says this relationship with Jesus is supposed to to mirror this this marriage relationship that, that as believers we're to have. It's to be a a mutual one of self-sacrifice. It's to be a mutual one of submission, of of mutual love and respect. And what happens is this this relationship has structure built in. It has protection built in. And it has equality of environment built in where both of the individuals can flourish and become all that God designed them to be. Amen? Okay. That's okay. I don't need any amens today. I'll amen myself. That is the divinely designed pattern. It was not a picture of the marital relationships of the cultures around them. It's not what we see in antiquity. Most cultures, in fact dare I say all cultures, restricted women. There were all kinds of restrictions placed on women and men were free to do whatever they wanted to do. They could do anything, and by that I mean anything. But women were restricted. That was the culture. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, women weren't even allowed to go out in public unless they put on their veils. We we, we look at the, the Muslim ladies, and we get all freaked out about that. Look, they're just carrying on a tradition that goes back thousands of years in the Middle East. It's not Islamic. Now, I'm not... Yay or nay on it, but in Jesus' day, it was it was to show something. It was to show that the, the ladies who wore the veils and covered themselves were chaste and godly women. Because the women that didn't wear veils and 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 th- that kind of dress were prostitutes. Alright. So in the Jewish culture, they couldn't go out of the house without a male escort. They didn't have a place or a voice as much in the synagogue. In other words, they had to enter a different door. They couldn't speak. They couldn't pray. They couldn't do anything. And and their word, their testimony of something that they saw was, was not considered reliable in court. Okay? In other words, five of them could have been witnesses to something, and a man stand and go the opposite direction, and the court would believe, guess who? Man, that was the culture that Jesus came comes up in. The Greeks were were just as just as bad. Education for the Jewish ladies was inferior at best and 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 non-existent at worst. And 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 literally, they were considered property. They were thought to be inferior, and they were thought to be untrustworthy. And there wasn't much difference in Roman and Greek culture. In, in the pagan temples, the only way that women could participate was as temple prostitutes. Now, they had their own religion, religious meetings that was, was all women, but as far as, as men and women worshiping together, not very often. They had little or no voice in the workplace, they had no little, little or no voice in the government. Uh, their responsibility was in the home. Okay? Now, I don't have time to go into this, but they, they had great power in the home. I want you to understand this. They were in charge of the slaves. They were in charge of everything that happened in the home. So it wasn't they were, they were you know, sentenced to the home. There, there was great power there. And, and, and the reality of it is is the person that rules the home rules the country. And so they had some influence, but they were not allowed to go out. And they wore, there was, there was, Romans and and Greeks both had a dress code. If a woman went out in public, she wore, if she was a chaste woman, a married woman, she had to wear a certain type of gown and she had to wear a certain kind of head covering. That said, she is not available. You say, Nelson, why is that necessary? Because men could do anything. All right there was no there was no laws for accosting a woman whose head was uncovered on the streets even if she belonged to to uh, she was married to another man Do y'all understand what kind of culture I'm talking about okay they were for all practical purposes they were expected to be obedient they were expected to be quiet and they were su- uh, expected to be submissive to the male population. Well, number 1, the Bible never says that women are to be submissive to the male population. The only place it it talks about submission is husbands and wives, okay? So I want to I want to get rid of that right away. Women are not inferior to men. All right? Amen. I can get my ladies to say that. I'm working up a sweat. Now, these are not new cultural beliefs, okay? These beliefs and these cultural expectations had been around thousands of years before Jesus, before the Apostle Paul. And remember why Jesus came? He came to show us what the Father thinks, who the Father is. And there are some amazing things that happen when Jesus steps on the steam. And you know what? We've not been made aware of them. We've never paid close attention to them. We've never put together what was going on in culture and what was going on with the group that followed Jesus. But I hope to shine just a little light this morning. Something amazing takes place. Something shocking. Something that was a cultural no-no. It was taboo. It's recorded in Matthew. It's recorded in Mark. It's recorded in Luke. There are a group of unescorted women who travel with Jesus. Well Nelson, I just don't believe that. Read the Gospels. It's there. Not only were they unescorted, they were genuine followers of Jesus and some of them even provided financial support for his ministry. They would have been known as patrons, which is the system that, that the Roman system and the Greek system was established on. You had the patron you had the people that live off the patron and everybody else, and the patron got all the honor. But Jesus takes an aspect of that, and it's not that he's he's he's, he's doing what they want. He's, they're 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 blessing him. They're 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 they're. You. But it was a part of that system, and so these women provide financial support for, for him and the apostles for three and a half years. And what's more amazing to me. Now these ladies are not married. I mean some of them are married. Their husbands are not with them. Okay? But what's more amazing is this. Who does Jesus appear to on the resurrection morning? First. Who? Women. Who does he delegate to be the witnesses of what has taken place? Women. Who are these women going to? What kind of men? What kind of what nationality were they? They were Jewish men. The testimony of a woman or two or three women wasn't considered reliable, and yet Jesus gifts them with the greatest message that has ever been told. So what does that say about Jesus? Who were left at the cross when Jesus is dying? One man and a group of ladies. Jesus turns the culture on its ear. Because folks, He didn't come to build up culture. He came to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. He came to deal with biases. He came to deal with with segregation. He came to deal with all that stuff. And he started quickly when he steps out in ministry. He doesn't wait till the resurrection. But so he shares that with, with these ladies. And and they take the greatest story that's ever been given, the, the greatest message, the message of life. They take it. And the world considers them unreliable and worthless. And what Jesus does is 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 he elevates women beyond what the world and what religion says. What happens is the King of Kings restores their original status that they had in creation. So if he restores it, guess what? It's restored. All right. I wanna I wanna read a quote. I think Tom has this up on. It's going to put it up on the screen. It's 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 ri- it was written by Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a was a very close friend of C.S. Lewis. And some of you may know who C.S. Lewis is. He was a tremendous Christian writer, uh, uh, a tremendous thinker. But this is what she says. This is what she says. And I want you to listen to it. It it just struck me when I it pierced me to my my heart when I read it. But I want you to listen to it. And I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to use it. Ms. Sager says this, she says, Perhaps it's no wonder that women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There had never been such another, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes or arch jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without fault finding and praised without condescension who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity, nobody could possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. And that's a powerful statement right there. Know what happened is Jesus crushes the old culture with its religious expectations and and the good old boy network and he sets a new standard for Christians. He, he, He makes something new. Listen, our culture is to be the culture of the church. It's to be Christ's church. It's to be what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Christ-like. Folks, I've said this once before, but this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Instead, you know what? The church has fallen short of the standard that Christ set. The church has taken the writings of Paul and pulled them out of the biblical context. They've taken a verse here and a verse there. And they've taken it, most uh, sadly, they've taken it out of the cultural context. And they've taken it out of the whole of Scripture context. And they've told women to sit down and shut up because you don't have a place in leadership, you don't have a place in teaching, and you're not supposed to express your spiritual gifts. Listen, Paul was not a misogynist. If you don't know what that means, it's somebody who hates and fears women. If you want to know what that is, just go out in culture, and you will be you will meet tons of men who are misogynist. They fear women because they haven't taken time to understand who they are. Okay, I was going to say something else, but I don't need to say it, so I'm going to move on from that. Okay, Paul's teaching reflects something. All right, it reflects. The original creation order that God put into place—it—it it creates the the high value that that God places on, on 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 women as creatures made in His image, and He commands husbands. The commands He gives to husband and wives. By the way, that's what He says in in, in Ephesians. He says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to your husband. When he says that, he turns the culture upside down. Literally, a husband could go out and he could do anything he wanted to and come back home. I mean, it was, it was normal for men to have all kinds of, of sexual escapades. Not just with women, but with men. All right? That's the culture of the Greeks and the Romans. You hear what Paul's saying? Husbands. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. What did, by the way, what did Jesus do for the church? He died for her. He set aside his desires and and his needs and he died for her. And so what Paul is saying to those husbands, you can't live like the Greeks and you can't live like the Romans and expect to be a part of my kingdom. You got to love in a different way. And then He speaks to the ladies. He says, I want you to respect them. I want you to honor them. I want you to encourage them. Because listen, if you're shut up in a house all the time and you can't go out unless you get permission, you know what happens? Y'all tell me. You get a little angry, don't you? You get a little frustrated. Let's just be real here. There's a word came to my mind I won't use it cuz it's not it just wouldn't be right. <laughs> Anger is good enough, okay? And it starts to you know, it starts to ferment. Okay? What what does what does, what does Jesus say to the la- ladies that that's not going to work in the kingdom? I want you to encourage this guy. Yeah, but he don't deserve it. I want you to encourage him. I want you to be like the bride's supposed to be. And by the way, guys, he's talking to men here that could not even fathom being a bride. That was foreign language to the men were not to be feminine in any way. They were to be warriors. Okay, so he's he's saying to the men, You're a part of the bride. Remember the sons that the ladies have? Jesus is an equal employer, okay? He's, He's calling on the men to be brides. And so what happens is he paints this picture of marriage and he paints this relationship with God and this relationship between husbands and wives and men and women in the church in a totally new light. He elevates the ladies to the place of honor that was unknown in the world that he lived in. I mean, it was revolutionary what he was teaching. And yet, theologians today that don't spend the time to figure out the context, they they call him a, a, a man who hated women. Listen, the Apostle Paul didn't hate women. I'm fixing to show you how much Paul loved the women that he served with and that he ministered with. In the church, Paul opens all kinds of doors for service and and worship. His explanation, remember when we did spiritual gifts? There was no limitation on who could receive a spiritual gift, right? It was sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, He could sovereignly give them to whomever He chose. And so he distributes them in a sovereign way, which means he allows women as well as men to build up the church, because that's the that's the bottom line for spiritual gifts. They're to build up and to edify. So men and women can exercise their their gifts to build up and to edify. Their abilities as ladies and their capabilities were not inferior. Now, when you I I, I teach, uh I'm fixing to start semester in a couple of weeks, I teach the book of Romans to. Uh, a new generation of pastors and teachers and church workers and theologians. And last year when we got to Romans 16, most people, when they get to Romans 16, they're worn out by Paul's argument. Amen? Let's just be honest. Romans is a hard book to read. I mean, he is he is like an attorney arguing a case. And so when you get to Romans 16, you know, you, you get into... Welcome this one, hug this one's neck. I send my love to this one,. I, 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 I. You just don't read it. Listen, Romans 16 is, is a picture of, of how Paul ministered with ladies and men. okay? I'm just going to give you a few of these. I'm going to challenge you to read them. But in Romans chapter 16, verse one and two, Paul says this. He says, "I commend to you, to you our sister Phoebe." And your translation probably says who is a servant of the church which is at Centuria. That word servant there is the word diakonos. Whenever it's used with a man he's called a what? A deacon. Guess what? You know why it's not translated deaconess or deacon here? It's, deacon is the word. You know Why? Because the people who translated it had a bias and said, you know what? Ladies can't serve in this position. The Word is the Word. I'm not making this up. The Word's the Word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon of the church, which is at Centuria, which is likely, it probably happened in her house. All right, Which means she already has authority over what happens in her house. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matters she may need for you, uh, have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. It's interesting that, and it's very likely that Phoebe took the letter from Paul's hand and carried it to the Romans. All right? She gets the big introduction when, when we start talking about who is what. She's the first one mentioned. So it's likely that Phoebe brought the letter. And if she brought it, she likely read it. Okay. So it's a good possibility. Many scholars believe that Paul entrusted that letter to Phoebe for delivery to the Roman believers. And, and by the way, second to the message of the resurrection... What's taught in the book of Romans may be the most important message for the church. It's salvation and what salvation really is. And she carries that message to the church there at Rome. It's the most doctrinal book in the New Testament. But Paul doesn't just mention her. Let me find it. I got to finish up here. I'm almost through. He calls her a helper of many. That word "helper" there, translated "helper," in other places is translated "overseer." It's translated "protector." It, it, there's a, a, a guardian. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? She was a protasis. She was likely an overseer in the church. The one who who shepherded people. I know this is getting sideways in some folks. You're not going to like the next couple then. In Romans 16.3, Paul sends his greeting to Priscilla and Aquila. Y'all familiar with Priscilla and Aquila? Luke refers to them as Aquila and Priscilla in the book of Acts. But every time Paul mentions them... He says uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Every other place Bible interpreters go to decide who is the lead and who's the not, except here, they will say, well then, the first person mentioned is probably the leader. Well, guess what? Paul says first, he gives prominence to Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila are the ones that, that, that discipled Apollos who was a man who was mighty in the word, but when he came to Corinth, he he wasn't up to speed. So Priscilla and Aquila, they teach him. Priscilla and Aquila were driven out of Rome by by the Caesar because the church was, was pushed out. All the Jews had to leave. They end up in Ephesus and it's very likely that they had a church in their home. And so... Paul says about Priscilla and Aquila that they're on his ministry team. And they have a house church in their home and, and they played a great part in, in the ministry. And like I said, he, he mentions her name over and over and over. And then in Romans 16.6, six, he says this, he sends his greeting to Mary, who has worked hard for you. In other words, he's, he's commending this lady for working hard in the church. Whenever he uses this, this phraseology in other letters, he's talking about people who have ministered in those churches. And here's the one that will, uh, this one will, sh- will, will just blow your mind. In, in Romans 16, 7, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who, were also, who also were in Christ before me. Andronicus is a male name. Junia is a female name. Now you may have a translation that has Junius. There was no Junius for about six centuries. There was only a Junia. Even church fathers who, by and large, were not favorable to women. John Chrysostom, who is, who is called the Golden Mouth, he's a, he was a tremendous preacher. He, he says this. He says this about Junia. He said, she must have been something to have been named with the apostles. They must have been something for Paul to give them that. But in about the 6th, 7th, 8th century, it seems like a scribe decided that, you know what, women can't be apostles. That's got to be Junius. The only problem is Junius, does that name does not exist in Latin or in Greek. They've never found a, a pottery shard, a, 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 a writing or anything with that name. But it's come down in translations. And certain translations still carry that. There's a bias there. You say, Nelson, what does all that mean? It means that the Bible faithfully records what happened. If you read your Old Testament and you read your New Testament, you will find Miriam was a leader of Israel. I think that's the word it uses. Huldah was a prophetess, Deborah was a prophetess. A guy goes to Deborah and says, what does the Lord say? And he says, if you'll go up, you'll have a great victory. He says, I'm not going if you don't go. And, and Deborah says, well, you won't get the victory, a lady will. And she leads the army with him. I didn't know that was in the Bible. It is. Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. The daughters of Philip in the New Testament, they're known as prophetesses. Listen, the church needs... Here's here's all I'm saying. The church needs women to be everything God has ordained them to be and purposed them to be. Without women, listen, the apostles would very likely have not gotten the message. Alright? You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I don't. But how do you not know that? It is what it is. And I can say this... Because I have studied church history closely and I have been a part of church history. Without ladies, the church would almost have disappeared. All right? But I was a part of a a group that, that, that the men disappeared out of, and the ladies held on. And you know what? God sent men back. You see that all through history. Without faithful women, The church may have disappeared. And so the time has come for the church to validate and appreciate and empower ladies who love and serve Jesus. Listen, the devil does not want women to be free to minister to Jesus and to others. You know why? Because he fears the power God has given them to nurture and stand in faith. And so therefore he appeals to our fears and he affirms uh, appeals to our distrust and our mistrust and to our uncertainty over what the Bible teaches and to our re- regional uh, when we live in the south our regional culture and to our denominational biases well since we're not denominational we're not going to have those biases alright I'm not anyway he stirs all this up, and what he does is he dresses it in very pious robes of religion. You say, Nelson, where did all this come from? I made a, 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 a not a vow, I don't, I don't mean a vow, but I made a decision early on when I went into ministry that I was always going to be a student, okay. not an expert, a student. Which means I give Jesus liberty every day to show me Where I've believed something wrong. And guess what? Over my fifty or so years of of following Jesus, he has shown me a few of those things. He's shown me a great, a tremendous amount of things that I was taught right. But there were some errors. And whenever He showed me an error, I had to confront it, which meant I had to study it. I had to dig into it. I had to read. I had to figure out what the Word said. Listen, I went to a school which was cessationist and did not believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but they taught me how to use this book. They gave me the tools that gave me the ability to look and to find out what this book says. And God gave me a mind to think with. And so... I had to consider things. And when I came out in a place where, you know what? This is kind of strange. I just keep digging. And I'll be honest with you. I've come to that place on this issue. I know what this says. I know what that verse says. I know if you put them together, it looks like a really good doctrine. But Paul didn't put them together. He wrote the letters 20 years, 15 years apart. He wrote them to different areas in the world who had different issues going on. I was taught if you don't use the context, you don't have have truth. You get whatever you get. And so I began to put that together and I realized, you know, maybe some of what I've been taught in this area is possibly wrong. God forbid. And then I looked at the experiences that I saw. I can remember talking to young women that, that God had called them into ministry. I could see it. I could see the calling on their life. I, I've, I've served on staffs where this, this excuse would be given. We don't believe that a lady can be a senior pastor. I'm still dealing with that, okay? But, but we don't believe that, but they can, be, they can be under pastors. But the problem was they would never give them that title. They were always called directors. I even confronted a pastor about that. I said, look, how can we call them directors when they do the same thing we do? <laughs> okay, you either if you, don't, if you don't believe it, don't say it. Does it make sense? So I've been struggling with this for a long time. I've come to the place where this is what I believe. We're equal. And because we're equal, God can use us any way He wants to use us. We're not talking about culture. We're not talking about history. We're talking about the body of Christ. Where there is neither male nor female, there's neither Jew or Gentile, there's neither slave nor free. We are one in Christ. So I'm just, I'm bringing this today because what we need in this church is some men and some women who will stand up and they will step out and they will start doing what God has called them to do. That's it. Listen, you don't need my permission to minister to people. Jesus gave you that mandate. He called you to do that. That was His commission to you. You don't need my permission. I wish you'd just do it. If we make a mess, we'll clean it up. We'll figure out how to do it better. But we need men and women who will just start doing what God's called them to do and stop allowing what somebody else who claimed to be an expert told you or taught you about who you are and what the limits of what you can do or cannot do. There are no experts. None. Jesus is the only expert. If you want to interpret Scripture, interpret it through the Gospels. Look back through Jesus. Look forward through Jesus. Because none of the Scriptures go against Jesus. All right? They don't. If they do, then this is not the Word of God. Start listening to who God says you are. Young ladies, stop listening to what the world says. What the world says you ought to do and how you ought to do it. Start listening to God. Older ladies, stop believing what you've been told all your life and listen to what God says. God has given you a backbone. Straighten up. Okay? Stop looking down. Start looking up. Start looking out. Men, get your acts together if you have an issue. Figure out what the issue is and deal with it, okay? I'm preaching to myself today. But just start listening to what God says and what God wants to do through you, through Christ. And you know what you will find? There are no limits. None. Except the ones you impose on yourself or you allow somebody else to impose on you. All right? If God's given you a prophetic gift, use it. If God's given you a, a serving gift, use it. If God's given you a healing gift, use it. If God's given you a miracle gift, use it. All right? No, no. Well, I'm not qualified. None of us are qualified. We've been qualified by Jesus Christ. That's the only qualification you need. You don't need a degree on your wall. You don't need this school or that school or this denomination or that denomination supporting. You just need Jesus. We'll close with this. I'm going to take a breath. Paul says this. And when Paul says this, Scripture says that there is no... Prophecy that comes by the desire of somebody's heart. It comes through the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks this word. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you, and that's a plural you. That's all of us. For you are all, all one in Christ Jesus. We are one. Okay. If we allow division and, 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 and uh, those kind of things to take place in our relationship with one another, guess where the, that will take place as well? It will take place in our relationship with Jesus. Because I need you to get to Him. And you need the rest of us to get to Him. We need each other. We were made to be one. He has restored those things that have separated us. He's torn the curtain of separation. Listen, that curtain didn't just separate human beings from Jesus. There was another curtain. It separated the men from the women. It separated the Gentiles from everybody else. Jesus ripped down all the curtains. They don't exist anymore. So therefore, we need to go after God. Listen to me. I'm messed up, okay? But you are too. But you know what? When we put all our messed up together, synergistically, we can do more than one of us could ever do when we are united when we become one we will begin to see God move in ways that will blow our minds so stop listening to what everybody else says I've, I'm sure I'll I'll get some stuff okay because this is a pet, this is a sacred cow in a lot of places. God's called me to kill cows, okay? He has. He's called me to to, to slay the cows that are in the way. Especially the religious ones. Alright? And I think this is a religious one. I'm not Now listen to me. I'm not saying there are not functions that, that we carry out that... that that God's ordained for us. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's no, in God's eyes, there's no male and female. There's just followers of Christ. Okay? There's no B part of heaven that one group goes to and an A part that the others go to. It's the presence of Jesus. The the, the ground at the cross is level. Okay? Let's pray. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.